Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Join us a little bit later when the fabulous Eleanor Yanagar will be taking all of your questions on about medieval women. Uh, it's fascinating. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, tomorrow, wow, tomorrow... Uh, Utter carnage and chaos ensues as we get together the chosen men, all five of them from Sharp, for the first time in Donkey's Years. Uh, it's brilliant and hilarious and insightful. And, and there's a, a lame attempt to include some serious history in there. But frankly, uh, I couldn't control them. But it's brilliant. So join in for that as well. Don't forget that you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month to help keep us going after the coronavirus crisis. You can do this by going to www.historyhack.podbean.com. Hello and welcome to another instalment of History Hack's Oral History. Um, Alina, who do we have with us today? Today we've got Colonel Susan Luz, who was one of the highest ranking female members of the Massachusetts Army Reserve Unit. She was deployed to Iraq in 2006 and 2007. But before joining the reserves, she was a nurse in the Peace Corps and she published a book about her experience, The Nightingale of Mosul. There is so much more I can tell you about Susan, including that she was awarded the Bronze Star. But I want you uh, all to hear it from her um, and about her inspirational life story. So welcome, Susan. Thank you for having me. Uh, you guys are great. I I didn't know all you did for us women, and I so appreciate um, both of you, Alina and Alex, for having me on your radio show. You're an inspiration to me and all the women that you um, interview. Oh, thank you. Thank you. How is lockdown for you? Whereabouts are you? Well, we're in um, North Central Rhode Island, and uh, it's not bad being locked down with the, my uh, the best my best friend, my hubby's George. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's not too bad. Perfect. Do you know what? I think we should dive straight in uh, because I'm quite excited to hear what you've got to tell us. Um, we'll start with the simplest and easiest question. Why did you want to be a nurse? Why did you decide to be a nurse? Why did I decide to become a nurse? Well, I come from a family of teachers. Um, my mom was a teacher. Um, my whole family were teachers. And I decided that because... My mom had a sister who lived with us, um, Ellen. She was a dwarf. She she walked till about the age of 12, and then she fell and, and was in a wheelchair. She, so she was the fifth child in the house. My mother had two boys and two girls. And I decided I liked taking care of Ellen. So the whole family became teachers, but me, I uh, knew I wanted to take care of people like Ellen. So that was my first inkling that I wanted to become a nurse. So you trained to be a nurse, but um, you decided to go and join the Peace Corps, didn't you? How did that come about? Well, um, the Peace Corps. I wanted to save the world since I couldn't go to Vietnam and save soldiers' lives. Um, I, Like I said, my father was a World War II. He was a Silver Star Purple Heart under General Patton, Judge Patton. And when I got out of college, I came home and I said, I want to go to Vietnam. My father said, you're not going. And later on, when I joined the reserve at age 33, I he told me why nurses died. So I decided I wanted to go into Peace Corps, and I did, with my best friend, who was my roommate from the University of Rhode Island, and off we went to South America. So, so that, that was your first deployment, South America, of the Peace Corps. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Um, About the Peace Corps? Well, I remember my first... Um, thought was we all got stationed in um, New Orleans for three days. And me, you know, I was in college. I was kind of a chubby little girl. I didn't have a boyfriend. I had a lot of girlfriends, a lot of guy friends, but 
I was so shocked by everybody, all the crowds. They were going to different places in the Peace Corps. And we all got on a plane, and I remember hearing somebody say, oh, do you, did you bring your birth control? I'm like, what? Uh, you know, there's a good Catholic. I went to 12 years of Catholic school, and I said, oh, no, I don't even have a boyfriend. But I got there. I met the most wonderful people, and for three months, we were stationed together in the Fortaleza. It was the capital, one of the capitals, the Sierra. And then after that, we all went into the villages, and I lived with a family and did nursing. I worked in uh, the mini postus, went out into the rural parts of um, Brazil, and um, I learned a lot, delivered babies, did immunization clinics. It was wonderful. I'm, I'm going to ask what happened in Brazil apart from... Well, well, uh, well, what happened was, and, you know, I don't always like to talk about it because I think that, um, you know, for me, um, it, it was something that, um, I'm very proud of that, um, I was determined to finish my mission. I was attacked and, um, I was living with a family and I was brutally raped and, you know, I have my scars to prove it and, um, but you know what? I went back to Brazil, and I think um, I changed um, the ruling for the Peace Corps that women now um, couldn't be alone in a little village. It would be uh, two women together. So, you know, that was that was wonderful for me because I did something to change that. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I think I've been an inspiration for a lot of the women I know in life um, because it's made me stronger. Um, so... I just think it's incredible that your attitude was to go, well, hell yeah, I, I've got a job to do and I'm, that's, that person is not going to stop me. Absolutely. Well, um, it didn't stop me. Um, you know, um, before the book came out, I wrote a book, The Nightingale of Mosul. I never talked about what happened when I was in uh, Brazil in the Peace Corps. It's very ironic because like I said, my father didn't want me to go to war. Yet when I was in the Peace Corps, I was attacked, left for dead, you know, spent some time in the hospital. I have my visible scars on my face, but my most of my scars are inside. That's why I can't have kids, and I love my nieces and nephews. Those are my kids. But um, God had it all worked out for me. I didn't die that day. I chose, you know, in, you choose in life uh, if you want to be a survivor, and I stayed there and survived. I was determined to finish my mission um, there in Brazil, and I'm so happy. It made me a stronger person. Do you still have ties to Brazil now? I actually went back. Oh, yes. I went back to Brazil on a cruise ship and took George. But I actually went before I was married. Um, I got married in 1985 when I was 35. I thought it was too young. I went back to see a lot of my friends, and I went to the village. And it was like, a, um, oh, my God, it brought back memories and the good memories, not the bad memories. There's bad people all over the world. So, so I uh, just... I, I really don't know what to say. I'm kind of a little bit stumped um, about what you went through in the Peace Corps. I mean, I'm assuming everybody here listening is just taking a little bit back. Just the the absolute strength, though, to just say, well, I'm not going home. I'm not giving up. I've had an ethos of why I wanted to be part of this, and that doesn't change no matter what's happened to me. I just think that's it's amazing. Inspirational. Yeah. I, I, I think it's because of my mother. My mother was a very strong woman. Like I said, she had a sister who she took care of, like the fifth child. Most people back in those days, they went into institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother had, uh, you know, a lot of things happened. When I was in the Peace Corps, my brother was in a very serious car accident and he was in a coma. I, I didn't know it at the time. I was supposed to come home from my sister's wedding to be the maid of honor. And at the time, um, my parents knew what happened to me, my sister. But a lot of people said, how come you didn't come over to your sister's wedding? Well, I was, you know, in the hospital uh, for a while and, you know, recovering from my wounds. But I was determined to go back because I'm Irish. I'm strong. <laughs> Just like a lot of the women that you guys interview. Oh, my God, I can't wait to listen to some of the stories now that I've met you guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, so... After all of this happened, you you went back to Brazil. But after returning from Brazil, you decided to work as a nurse in some of the most poorest schools in Rhode Island. 
what made you want to go down that road? I mean, I know you want to help people, but why the most poorest schools in Rhode Island? You could have gone and done anything. Well, um, when I did come back, um, my my whole family are teachers, so I decided, um, oh, I'll be a nurse teacher, but I got to do more than that. So um, I interviewed for three different high schools, and I picked the one that was in the inner city school. You know, they've had shootings, rapes, all kinds of things. And I actually was one of the ones that, um, along with uh, uh, my principal, uh, Dr. Zarella, we um, started a, um, a, what do you call it, a clinic within the school. And this was unheard of back in those days in the 70s and a, a daycare. So, if you know, because a lot of the kids in the inner city school, they would get, the girls were getting pregnant. There was gangs and everything. So I was very proud of myself. But at the time, I wasn't married, so I also said, well, let me go work, on, you know, with the prison. So I worked in the forensic unit of the prison, and um, back then it was called the criminally insane. They couldn't go to um, the prison because they had psychiatric problems, and they couldn't go to, um, uh, you know, the, the, another portion of the hospital. So I worked there second shift until I got in a bad car accident, and I had just got married in 1985, and I said, oh, I better not, uh, you know, do too full. I better have a job. And but I've always done so many things in my life. I, you know, I, I do a lot of teaching at the university. In fact, Jersey was my last day to teach uh, community health, and that's what I am. I'm a public health nurse. Although in the military, I uh, was a team with a combat stress um, a guy, that a male nurse, and we were like a good team. You know, the community health nurse and the combat stress nurse. And I guess I've always wanted to help people. So. That's what I've done my whole life. And um, I'm very proud that um, I never gave up, especially what happened to me in Brazil, because I could have given up. I tell a story of uh, a young lady that was in the hospital, a nurse coming out of Rhode Island Hospital, and she was brutally raped. And um, because at that time, you didn't have parking lots that were secure. And later, she committed suicide. And there goes for the grace of God that I didn't do that. And, um, but I never talked about this until the book came out. And I, and in the book, I didn't, I didn't go into the gory details. I didn't, I didn't need to. I have nieces and nephews. Everybody knows that, um, I couldn't have kids and they, they, they knew why. Um, but I'm strong and I think I've been, um, a nurse who's really listened to people when they've gone through things in their lives. And, I'm doing all the talking now, but mostly I do all the listening. <laughs> Tell, us about, <laughs> Tell us about um, some of the ways that you were able to make a difference um, with these high school kids. Well, I think it's by example. Um, I'm pretty strict, although um, once they got to know me, they, they know that uh, I, I was more like, the, like in the military, they call me Colonel Mom. Like in, And in the high school, they knew that, Hey, if, you know, they needed to share a lunch with somebody, it would be me. And mm-hmm. it's because that particular kid didn't have lunch. Back in those days, we didn't have the lunch programs that we have now. Um, and then there was kids that came to me that were really hurting. Um, they were getting sexually abused at home. And I was the one that, you know, they could open up to. I was young when I, you know, I got back from the Peace Corps, got my master's in community health nursing from Boston University, and then went back to Brazil with Project Hope, it was with Ship Hope. And, but I always knew that I, you know, I love kids. I couldn't have them. So what better way to become a school nurse teacher? Although I didn't teach. I worked really in the clinic. My school was over 2,000, about 2,200 people. So uh, anyway, I loved, and I still to this day get calls. From, just yesterday I got a call from one of my students. He suffered seizures really badly and um, his mother died while he was in high school so he always keeps in touch and I have many more stories like the girl that um, slit her wrist in the bathroom and um, later on uh, she had two kids and um, I found out when she was a junior that she was getting sexually molested by her mother's boyfriend so uh, I think I made a difference. Oh, it sounds like you certainly did. The high school wasn't your only job um, at the time, though, was it? Tell us a bit more. Well, do you mean about joining the Army Reserve? Because um, no, I did your, rec- your nighttime job. Oh, my school. nighttime job. Oh, dear. After well, school. back in those days, like I said, uh, the forensic unit was for the criminally insane. We don't call that anymore. But um, it was people that, for example, we had um, a gentleman who uh, was a cook. 
And he uh, came out of the back of the Chinese restaurant and killed eight people. One was a mother that was pregnant, so it was really nine people. Um, he was a lovely man when he was on medication. He was schizophrenic. We had another uh, young man that um, went into a bar and just slit somebody's throat. So uh, naturally, you can't have him in the regular population of the psychiatric hospital. Um, I'm just trying to think of the high... The, the, the man, and I won't say his name, but he's since passed away from cancer. Um, but that's where they spent the rest of their lives. They weren't going to the prison or the psychiatric hospital. And I felt like I loved psych, but I loved community health. So uh, for me, my day job was really my job. And, uh, you know, but it was hard working in the forensic unit because, you know, they had to be restrained and everything. And, um, you know, some no one take their medication. And, you know, they were abusers of children and... Uh, so I, I was I was glad that um, that I went on to bigger and better things like you know teaching kids in the colleges and in, in my second job. But I yeah, always kept my I kept my first job for twenty eight years until I got deployed. I kept getting deployed because I joined the Army Reserve in nineteen eighty three, two years before I married my hubby. Um, that's another story. He was on a blind date, but he was all my mission. I mean, most people. Um, you know, they go away for long periods of time. Like my last mission was 15 months. Um, a lot of their marriages didn't survive, but I remember coming home and being so happy to be home. And uh, and I made a difference over there too, definitely in the military, I feel. Do you, Um, I think we need a little bit of smiliness in this. Do you want to tell us about your blind date? Oh, my blind date. Well, uh, actually, it was a forensic unit. One of the nurses there, it was a male nurse, he said, I have a brother-in-law. He's doing some acting in California. He's going back to Hollywood. Um, it's funny because I said, oh, he's an actor. And he said, well, not really. He's just, he plays those parts, you know, <laughs> they don't have speaking roles. But um, so I met George, and he said it was love at first sight. I don't know about that. But um, anyway, yeah. <laughs> We got married eight months later, and I remember on the night before the wedding saying, oh, my gosh, I'm too young, and my sister turning around to me because she got married right out of college. You're going to get married. You've been around the world. You need to settle down. Well, since I married George, I haven't settled down. We travel. We do a million things, and, of course, I've been to war a few times in uh, several humanitarian missions with the military, which I absolutely love being with the people from Central and South America and uh, all over. Because I, you know, I was destined to serve, as they say. So you just literally just mentioned the Army Reserves. I mean, why did you decide to join them? Why did I decide to join the Army Reserve? Well, um, I wanted to go to Vietnam, like I said, after college. My father, who served under General Patton, said, you're not going. So back in World War II, like I said, nurses died. They were in prison camps and killed by mortars coming in. So instead, I joined the Peace Corps. But it wasn't, like I said, till June 1983 that I joined the reserve. At that point, my father knew he couldn't stop me. He said, you better be a damn good officer and take care of your troops. And that's what I think I've done my whole life, take care of people. And um, and actually, in Iraq, I was the community health nurse. People say, oh, you went to Iraq and all those places, Kuwait, and yeah, as a community health, to keep my soldiers happy, healthy. Of course, I had other jobs with the military. When we had mass casualties, that would be like a big bus would come in and be blown up by the terrorists. And my job was to take care of the expectants. I think um, I tell everybody our soldiers went to the emergency room, but when you have a bus full of 40 people, um, you know, you can't sit. You have to triage, and they would come back to me. And I remember the a story of... This one soldier, he came back to us. He was supposed to go to the morgue. He was an American soldier. And I just looked at him, and I saw the red hair. My best friend, who I told you was in the Peace Corps with me, lo and behold, her son went to Iraq, and um, he was active duty. He was with the Calvary unit, and he had red hair. And I thought it was him, and I just I couldn't even even imagine telling my girlfriend her son had died. And I remember a young enlisted um, soldier that, uh, she, she was so wonderful. She said to me, Sue, look at his name tag. His, it's Dunkelberger. It's not Mannion. And then I said, Oh my God, I was feeling so happy that, um, Chris hadn't died. And then I said, Oh my God, a mother has lost her son. Um, somebody's lost their father. You know, a wife has lost her husband. And, uh, I never left that soldier. I stayed with him. 
uh, until they came from the morgue and um, all his soldiers saw him. And um, to this day, I'll never forget Sergeant Dunkelberger. And there was another young man with him, a enlisted, young enlisted boy, and he um, soldier, not boy, he was 21. And he said, I'm going to die. I'm going to die just like um, Sergeant Dunkelberger because he was in the same, you know, um, military vehicle when the IED hit. I said, oh, no, I put my arm around, you know, we're a reserve unit, so we do cookies, candy, not like the active duty nurses. They're tough. Um, and I said, no, honey, it's Christmas. You're going to have, um, it's going to be okay. And a month later, he was killed um, in a Humvee with four other soldiers. And uh, I always uh, will remember him as well, um, Specialist Grimm. So I have a lot of memories, you know. They always say to me, do you have PTSD? I said, no, but I have memories of um helping everybody there. And I, like I said, they call me Colonel Mom. I just uh, felt I made a difference over there, like in the Peace Corps. So, you know, I'm strong. I'm strong. Um, tell us about some of the peacekeeping missions you went on. Um, when did you go and where and what did you do? Well, as a humanitarian, uh, on a humanitarian mission, um, as a public health nurse, we would set up clinics. The dentists would set up their clinics, pull out teeth, because back there, you got people coming down from the villages, um, and they have no shoes, and, and they, we'd give them candy, we'd vaccinate the kids, but I've been to, let's see, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, El Salvador, Bolivia. I actually, one of my last missions was before I retired from the military at age 60, was Dominican Republic um, when they had the big earthquake. Mm-hmm. And we were sent to the border of Haiti. Um, and, oh, my God, the devastation in Haiti was unbelievable. But um, we were there, and we set up our clinic in the mountains. And um, it's just, you know, some of our places where we stay weren't the best. I, I tell a story uh, that um, there was supposed to be a guard on duty watching over. The girls were inside. The boys were on the other side. That's when I say boys because I'm older. I've always been the older soldier. Um, came in with a machete. And um, my girlfriend said to me, she woke me up. We were under mosquito nets. And she said, somebody just came in here with a machete looking at all the all the girls. And I said, oh, my God. And later on, we found out he had you know, he was uh, had some issues, some mental issues, but uh, it could have turned the other way too. But we were at the end of a mission there, and um, that happened to be in um, Guatemala. But there again, you know, I I love being with the people. I speak fluent Spanish and Portuguese, so I could really like relate and talk to them, and uh, mm-hmm. and know where to get the good wine too. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the veterinarians. You get it from the veterinarians. Another one, one, and she was a, a female veterinarian, so. Uh, you know, in a medical unit, uh, there's a lot of females, strong females. I'm, I'm no hero like them. I, you know, it's like when I came home, everybody said, Oh, you're my hero. I'm no, I have, well, I had three nephews terminally ill with cystic fibrosis. Uh, they're my heroes. We lost Jeffrey at age 33, three years ago. In fact, when I did, um, I wrote the book with Marcus Brotherton. I said to him, I'm only going to tell what I want to tell, but I, I am going to tell you, I'm going to dedicate to my three nephews because for a war, you fight the battles every day and you hope you win, but Jeffrey, Matthew, and Ryan, they fight their battles against cystic fibrosis every day, but I know they will win. And Jeffrey had three double lung transplants. What a fighter he was. But he always said, I was his hero, but they're my heroes. So my other two nephews are doing okay, especially during this crisis we're having, corona, uh, right, crisis, because it just affects people who have uh, immune systems. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure where well, you guys are the same all over the world, all over the world. And I wish I'm going to be 70 in May. I wish you could get out there and, and, and go back to the places I, I love to, to help out. But I, I do a lot of volunteer work here with George. He does the food pantry and, uh, he actually works at a ranch that lets, uh, soldiers with PTSD come and ride the horses and everything. So my husband goes up there and feeds the horses and does the mulch and all that kind of stuff. So uh, we keep ourselves busy. Are there any other anecdotes you have about going to Guatemala or Haiti? Oh, my God, there's so many. Um, let me see. Uh, I know that Alex and I are sitting here saying, we need to know more about what you did out there. It's just it's just incredible. Well, I remember it was going to, I think it was, um, was it Honduras? Uh, no, I think it was Guatemala because um, there's different parts of Guatemala. Um, I've been to Guatemala a few times. They were the Indian population. And I remember being in a hangar. We were all getting ready. Uh, we got our 
laying on a, uh, what do you call, gosh, I can't even think right now, but they little bunks, little bunks there in the, um, waiting to fly out. And 60 Minutes, which is a show on TV, said about how this, uh, woman went to Guatemala to help and, um, one of the Indian population thought she was there to steal her baby. And um, she was murdered. And I said, oh, wow. And here we are going to be landing there in the same village that, you know, but I, you know, I didn't come across that. Uh, I think because I speak the language and I could actually, you know, we're not there to steal your babies. We're there to help you. And, uh, you know, there's so many missions. I mean, with the long days, we get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, get ready. Sometimes we had to drive two hours up in the, the boonies and the mountains to get there and set up and get back late. And, um, you know, we eat meals, uh, MREs, meals ready to eat. So, uh, naturally that day, I figured about 3000 calories, but, uh, uh, just the things that a humanitarian, um, nurse does, you know, with clinics and, uh, vaccines and, uh, just teaching nutrition and, um, you know, all those kind of things. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Have you ever turned back? Have you ever not gone somewhere because it was too dangerous? Oh, no. No. Um, nope. You've gone on these PC missions. Then you're called up to Iraq. Um can you tell us about the deployment and what it was like to be a colonel? But before you answer, I really would love for you to tell us just a little bit, because I've read, I've read part of the book and there was an incident with, um, was it a Lieutenant Colonel? If I'm oh, mistaken, yes. can you, um, I think our listeners would love to hear what happened in that incident and obviously the, the rest of the question. So how it was, what it was like to be a colonel. Well, a full bird colonel, um, Actually, uh, Lieutenant Crow, you have you know, the tier of things. You have, uh, second lieutenant, first lieutenant, you know, captain, major, lieutenant colonel and colonel. And we were in the big auditorium in Boston. We're getting ready to head out. We have our backpacks on. I always carry Shaggy with me. Shaggy is a little bear that I carry everywhere. He always dressed up with his military uniform on and everything. And, uh, George has, he has Rosie. Rosie stays at home with George, but every mission I go on, and I remember this lieutenant colonel coming up to me. This is against regulations. You can't do this. And um, we had set up the place. I volunteered with about five people who set up the whole place. Came early in the morning. This person didn't, and saved a couple of seats for my husband and my, you know, family and everything. And he said, "You can't. That's against regulation." And he said, "Take that thing out of your backpack." And I said, "What thing?" I said, "My my bear." And he goes, "That's against regulation." And I'm saying, "You got to be kidding me!" And I said, "Listen." Look at the little um, eagle on this chest of mine. I have never pulled rank, never. I said, but you know what? I outrank you. This bear's staying there, and my husband is going to sit there because I was always the person that did um, all the social events for the military. So, uh, And, you know, it's funny, that particular lieutenant colonel, we were separated. Um, uh, we went to Wisconsin for three months to train, you know, the weapons and all that. He went to Tecrit. I went to Mosul. But because I was a Fulbright colonel, I went all over the place with the general down to Baghdad. And I remember seeing him in Decrit and saying to him, oh, by the way, um, my little Shaggy's in my backpack. Would you like to see him? And he's, he, he became my friend later on. He was, you know, <laughs> just some people get too military, you know. It's, uh, I'm military, but I'm also a human being and a nurse and, um, 
you know, just like in Iraq. I remember we um, had to go build a hospital in another area in Iraq, um, Al-Assad, and it's actually where my husband's um, cousin was killed. Um, he was 21, Brian. Um, he was with six other uh, Marines, very brave Marines on a patrol, and a flash flood came. And um, so when I went to Al-Assad, I had memories of he, he, he died right before I went to um, Brazil. And um, so we built our hospital there and everything. And um, I don't know, it's just, I have so many, I'm all over the place because I have so mem- many memories of uh, things. But um, when I did go there, I had to go to Germany, um, take some soldiers to Germany. They were launched. And I remember this guy yelling at me, get that colonel over there, get that colonel. And I thought it was, he should be with my girlfriend. She's a colonel. She actually was a lieutenant colonel. And I said, Gloria, I'm a public health and he probably wants to see you because you took um, care of that unit and we were in Mosul. He said, no, I want to see Colonel Luz. He got shot and he said, you know, the unit that replaced you guys, he said, they were active duty. We didn't get the candy, the cookies, all the hugs and things like that. And he said, Colonel Luz, I just want to thank you so much. You you, you, you will be ever in my heart because you really cared about my soldiers. Well, I care about everybody. I really care about everybody. That's what I get from my mother. You know, just like okay. I care about my nephews and my whole family. So you were with a, a mobile army surgical hospital. Um, what was your actually, role within that? Well, it's actually a combat support hospital. It's like a mass unit. Um, uh-huh. as, as the community health nurse, Basically, um, as a community health nurse, like I said, my job was to keep my soldiers happy and healthy. Um, I was always the uh, person, like I said, in my unit, the morale, wellness, and recreation person. So um, when I was in Iraq, um, I wouldn't work in the hospital. I would go to the hospital all the time, but um, except I would go to the hospital and we had mass casualties, more people coming in that were... Um, you know, blown up and things like that. And uh, I would hold the hand of a mother who was dying and her little boy was right next to her. He was dying. And because uh, we had terrorists that came into that, that unit when, uh, you know, they were killed. So I would never hold their hand. I would just, God forbid me, I know a nurse has an oath, but I would say, uh, let me push the morphine because I know you want to see your 27 virgins, but there was no tears shed. And, um, but the, the poor families that came in there. But actually, um, we had a clinic there. We did the same thing. Um, if some, one of the units, they, you know, sprained their ankle, they would come. We'd fix them up. we got uh, anthrax. We we had all the, sh- the shots to give and stuff like that. And I remember some of the young women saying, I don't want to take this anthrax. I'm so afraid. Um, and I said, don't worry about it. Well, It'll be okay because they would get uh, Article 15 if they didn't take all their shots. But who knows what anthrax was back in those days, taking shots and stuff like that. Basically, I worked with the combat stress. We go out with the veterinarians uh, just as a team. And I remember one day we went out because the unit called us that a young boy, I call him boy, soldier, he had um, shot himself in the um, where the unit makes the telephone calls and um I guess his girlfriend had broke up with him. So he basically blew his brains out. And uh, I remember a lot of the soldiers saying, hey, I want to make a call. But nobody could make a call home until we notify the family. And I remembered, oh, my God, um, you know, I got a lot of work to do with these young soldiers and the old soldiers, too. I said, we just got to give them a lot of support. But that was pretty much my job, you know. Uh, but I was also, like I said, I did cookouts there. You'll see in the book there's pictures of me. Um, I would go up to the defect where the cafeteria was, and I got very friendly with the, the boys from Alabama, the National Guard boys, because I would go there and I said, oh, knock on their door, and I said, knock, knock, and they said, who is this? And I said, a Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz. I'm in the little dog, Toto. And they go, oh, Colonel Wells, what do you want again? I said, well, I need some steaks. A lot of the... The guys are coming in from, you know, a lot of those guys were not on bases. We are on a base, so it's not a base like you think. Because the base we were in, Missoula, you could see the town, and we would get mortared every night. But there was guys out there that would have beaten those MREs I told you about. Mm-hmm. So they needed a good meal. So I would get things. I got everything. And I remember um, saying to um, the, 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 the soldiers, I'm going to get, when's your birthday? We'll get you a cake and stuff like that. So I basically, you know, uh, we, I don't know if you have them there. We have Girl Scout cookies. I had yeah. people send me Girl Scout cookies. Um, HBO, I know you know HBO because the band um, of others. It's about yeah. my husband's 
father, who was the famous George Luz. Um, and actually, in, in, in uh, Iraq, they always thought I was the daughter of, um, what do you call it, uh, George Luz. And they said, nope. I am married to his son, but my father was um, in the Battle of the Bulge, and he said that he rescued those guys, those 101st Airborne. And my father-in-law would say, oh, no, you didn't. We used to be in surrounded. We're airborne. We jumped in, parachuted in enemy territory and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I have so many. Uh, but I think the, the thing about when you asked about Iraq is that, for me, I just cared about everybody. I mean, and I got my wake-up call, I think it was three days into when I landed into Iraq. The girl who was training me, the other public health nurse, she was an um, active duty nurse from, um, I think it was from, I know it was from Washington, the state of Washington. And um, we got mortared and uh, about, the, you know, they say, get to the bunkers, get to the bunkers. And when we got out of the bunkers, they said mass casualty and actually um, – her assistant, I had an assistant that they were training, she was hit with a mortar and um, she was brought to the hospital and she almost died and uh, she was shipped out to lunch too. So I said, whoa, guess we're not in Kansas anymore, like the Wizard of Oz, we're in a war zone. But I knew that that day that I had to take care of everybody, you know, that was my job. Could you I tell us? I kill somebody in an emergency room, I mean, or in intensive care, because my whole life has been public health. That's what I do, public health. I love public health. And actually with this current, um, you know, COVID-19 crisis, uh, it's all about public health. It's about, you know, we've got to get a vaccine. Um, so, you know, we've lost so many people in your country, my country, and um, that's what our mission is, to keep people healthy and um, happy. And someday we'll get out of this and we'll find the virus. And I'll, if I was back in public, I'd be giving the shots. So anyway. I was just going to ask, could you just expand on what, a, what an average day, or average day, that's probably the worst way of saying it, but what a, what a day would have looked like when you were out there in Iraq? Would it, oh, well, we woke up fairly early and... Um, I'd usually go up to the hospital for a briefing and then I would go out to all the units. And um, basically I would, you know, just tell them they had come to the clinic, they have a sprained ankle, if they uh, weren't up to date with their shots. Um, it's like a regular a clinic you go to that, um, you know, um, I, oh my gosh, I ran so many um, programs. Like uh, there was a lot of soldiers that smoked. So we had smoking cessation clinics. We had Weight Watchers because uh, – like I said, I have a weight problem, and uh, of course, I kept my weight down when I was in the military. I'll never be skinny, but um, we ran so many things. We ran like the vaccine clinics. We we just basically went out and checking all the units, and uh, uh, I won't tell you about the times that I uh, busted into uh, big containers of uh, furniture because we needed furniture for the hospital, for the clinic, and uh, I would go on a rendezvous at night. Um, of course, here's the colonel and all these enlisted kids, and uh, we get stuff for the hospital. And I even went into dumpsters, and that's why they love me, because I go into dumpsters, because the units that were leaving would leave all the stuff behind, like lamps and things that, you know, like even blankets. You could wash those and stuff like that. Um, so, and I would always speak up for the rights of my soldiers if I thought that, um, you know, uh, somebody was being too strict with them, like that lieutenant colonel uh when we first left about my, my shaggy dog. Oh, please. But, um, we were a family. It was my second family. But my day started real early and then, um, I come back late at night and we start the cookouts and we deliver like, you know, food, hot dogs, hamburgers up to the hospital. My days wouldn't really end till like probably midnight. And, um, and then I'd be writing letters home and they, you know, um, just tell them about my, my days and I miss everybody. And, um, and check on all my soldiers in the area where we lived. And a lot of soldiers did have problems when they were there. But they had problems before they went there. And uh, But I just tried to help whoever I, you know, so I was having a problem. I always knew people by their first name. A lot of people didn't call people by their first name. I always used to get in trouble. Colonel Luz, don't be calling somebody by their first name. I'm like, well, we're off duty. I think I can call them by their first name. You know, the military has a lot of rules. but And I love the military, but... I'm also a person that um, needs to help people. Before I ask the next question, I just want you to tell everyone the one. There's a one more bit that I want everybody to hear about, and that was the moment on the plane. And I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. And the young soldier. Oh in, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, we were going to 
Iraq. Um, my husband had given me 20, um, no, not 20, a uh, dozen roses. Maybe it was more than a dozen yellow roses. And as we're going in the plane, it was a chartered plane. And they said, oh, Colonel, well, my uh, higher up said, come on, you got to go up front. It's first class. And we have, you know, and I said, what are you talking about? I said, all my friends are in the back because uh, I have friends with everybody. Actually, my battle buddy was a captain at the time. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I said, um, I, I got to go. No, no, Colonel, you got to go in the front. So I went back and I said to everybody, hey, they're not serving booze up there in first class. So I'm coming back here. Who wants my seat up there? Well, nobody said anything. They, you know, there's a bunch of uh, officers up there. So I saw this young kid. He was about six foot five. And I said, um, you're taking my seat up there. You understand? And he got nervous. And I said, yes. I said, the only stipulation, you carry my roses. And he said, okay, okay. So we went up there. And you know that um, he was an enlisted. He was a specialist. He never, if he saw me in the field, He's Colonel Luz. Let me hold you up. Hold you with your backpack. Let me do this. What do you need, Colonel Luz? It's because I did a little thing of kindness. I knew his long legs for 15 hours in that clamp back seat. So, uh, and I always did things like that, you know, just like going out and buying things at the, um, the little place we had, in, um, you know, in the base and everything. Cause I knew somebody needed something, you know, never forgot their birthdays, never forgot to ask them how their families were. But yeah. And it's funny with those roses. When we got into Iraq, uh, we were in Kuwait first. Um, I said to my girlfriend, I said, where's that pack of mints you have? And she says, why? She said that they're mine. And I said, no, they're not. We're putting them on everybody's uh, cot over here. We're putting um, rose petals and mints. And we're going to say this is the Ritz-Carlton in Kuwait. And we did the same thing when we got into Iraq. I said, hey, we may be in a war zone, but I love the Ritz-Carlton. And I said, everybody's got to feel good. So that's what happened to my roses. They were all made into little rose petals and stuff. But, <laughs> That's and they, they, and they kept very fresh because that it was up front. And that, that specialist, he took really good. I don't think he probably took him on his arms for 15 hours. In fact, I went back and I said, hey, you know, you can put those roses down on the floor. It's okay. You know, so anyway, that's the story. But he never forgot me. Never forgot me when I was in Iraq because, you know, you're a female, you know, and we need help sometimes, you know, with carrying things. I don't care what anybody says. I always say, if you want to open the door for me, fine. You know, because some people would say, oh, you're a soldier. It's not female or male. Well, guess what? Um, I'm a female too. But mentally, I was as strong as anybody there in my unit. And they, you know, that's why when you say I was awarded the bronze star, not for bravery. It's because I took care of my soldiers. I, I truly believe that. That's why um, I took care of my soldiers, you know. So, anything else you want to add about Iraq before I ask you about the book? Um, no, I just they, you know everybody like called me the blonde colonel, but I said no, no, it's it's I, you know I, I was the highest ranking person, female in Iraq, but it was because um, you know everybody loved me because I worked hard. I you know I had that little Irish twinkle. I'm 100 percent Irish. I'm very sociable. Um, everybody looked up to the colonel, but everybody uh, looked up to me because of who I was, that I was taking care of my people. So anyway, nope, I, I love my military experience. I love my whole career. You know, I always tell my young students, I have their fourth year college nursing students at the University of Rhode Island, love what you do because you'll never work a day in your life. And I've been so proud to be a nurse, an army nurse, a community health nurse, and a not because I, you know, really take care of my nieces and nephews since I couldn't have children because of Brazil. But that's only one blurb in my story. And hopefully that, um, you know, my book, people who read it, um, they may decide to go volunteer like I did. And women who read it about the rape and assault of a woman, uh, it speaks to being a survivor. You know, my life has always been positive, so I don't like to focus on that, what happened to me in Brazil. But when I do public speaking, which I did before, I talk about Brazil because the best part about it was I stayed there and finished my mission. I never gave up. I think that like anything else in life, you don't give up. I have my, you know, I have my flashbacks. I'm not going to tell you, but I have my flashbacks in Brazil, but I didn't do anything wrong. It was broad daylight. It was a little young, young, it was 10 years old. He was with me. And, uh, unfortunately he gave his life up for me. And, um, but I fought hard to stay alive and I did. I survived. What made you want to write it all down and write the Nightingale of Mosul? 
Well, let's see. Oh. Well, I had no intentions of writing a book. Um, they came after me, and I re- really believe it was because my brother, Bill, he called the Providence Journal, that's our local newspaper, to tell him about me being the word of the bronze star behind me. And back, back he did it. And um, so the article came out, and Marcus Brotherton, who's the author, he was he lives in Seattle, he picked up on it because I guess the, when I see stories, and um, he and his agent called me and said, we want to write a book about you because you are the daughter-in-law of the famous George Luz. You have such a story to tell. And I said, listen, my life is not all about the Army. I love the Army, but it's not about it. It's about my love of my nieces and nephews and being a wife. Um, and I don't have the time to write it, I said to him. I don't even use a computer. Actually, my husband does all my computer work for, um, you know, the university. Uh, I know how to use the computer, but I have a flip-flop phone. I choose, you know. I'm like, you know, I decide uh, things. Uh, uh, and like when my husband married me, he said, do you cook? I said, oh, no, I don't cook. I'm a wonderful cook, but I don't cook because I wanted my husband to cook. So anyway, (laughs) you know, it's, um, so when I talked to Marcus, he said, what if instead of a notoriety, make it a memoir, I'll call you once a week. And he did that for about two or three months. And, um, I told my story, I told him what I wanted to tell him. There's a chapter in there about Brazil and I don't go, like I said, into the gory details. Um, cause I'm going to tell my story and, but hopefully that story is an inspiration. My sister said I would have been a, did a better job cause I love to write letters and things, but I didn't have the time. I was working full time, working part time and helping everybody. So, uh, I've never taken a one cent for the book. It's all gone to charity, like cystic fibrosis. My nephews have that genetic awful disease. They weren't diagnosed at birth, but there's no cure for, um, like I said, Jeff died at 33 and to, um, my, being a brothers and sisters, I've, they've come back with drug problems, alcohol problems, homelessness. So I've done so many um, speaking engagements all over. And, um, you know, you get a check and I'm, whoop, I just give it to, um, you know, the people in need. And we have actually um, a place in Rhode Island. It's for homeless veterans. It's called Operation Stand Down. And um, uh, I go volunteer there. Um, they have it in September. And I do a lot of charity uh, work for them. And uh, But the book was not about me. The book was about my heroes in life, the people I met along the way, starting from my mother and father all the way up to now. My husband, my, pa- my parents have passed away. I was told my husband, George, you're number three on the list when I first got married. I said, my mother's first, my father's second. <laughs> and so, but now he's my number one. My parents are watching over me in heaven. So, uh, but. I wrote the story and uh, it goes to facets. I you know working in the public schools, working in the forensic unit, um, in the military, but in the end you'll see it's dedicated to all my heroes. And, um, you know, there's a, a band of brothers, uh, one of the guys in band of brothers, the real soldier, he said, was I a hero in the war? Um, and uh, he was telling that to his uh, grandson. He said, no, but I served in a company of heroes. And that's how I feel about my life. And, uh, so when people read the book, they say they're so inspired by it. And I'm so inspired by you guys, what you do. See, I get very nervous when I talk. I talk fast. I tend to, you know, forget things because, um, but you two have made it so wonderful. And I, to talk about this and, um, I hope I inspired maybe just one person in your audience that, you know, anything that happens in life, you, you too can um, survive it. Um, just, Think that you are strong. You are strong. Just like we are during this crisis. A lot of people are saying, oh, uh, well, this is awful. Everybody's losing their job. Yeah, people are losing their job. People are committing suicide over this. People are worried about their pensions. But I said, we will get through this. See, I went to like an old girls Catholic school. So and my mother's, you know, uh, I swear, but I'm religious. I swear. And I want to go to church. But I'm not perfect. I like to drink my wine. But one thing I think my faith it's gotten me through all this in life. And uh, I'll be 70 in May, and I hope that I will continue to inspire just one person. And, you know, and I would love to come to Poland someday. I, I have been to Auschwitz, and um, it was so moving for me. We were on a military mission in Vilsack in Germany, and we traveled all night on the uh, bus to get there. And uh, it was important for me to go there and see, you know, they weren't soldiers there, but they were... <laughs> hard for me to talk about because I went to Dachau too. I went to a lot of places. My father's liberated concentration camps. They're the real heroes. They're the ones who survived. And um, 
I think about them all the time. And it was important for me to take that 12-hour bus trip from, uh, what do you call it, Germany. And uh, so someday I want to go back when I can spend more than 12 hours in Germ- in Poland. So anyway, but. But just, this interview has just been mind-blowing. I think thank you so much for coming on and just sharing in this completely humble way all the amazing stuff that you've literally spent your life helping other people. Um Regardless of anything that's happened to you, you've always come back stronger for it. And I just think it's it's going to be such an inspiration to so many people listening. Well, thanks, Alina and Alex. And um having me on your radio show, uh, uh, I'm sure that I made a few blurps, but <laughs> only because I get nervous. And um, I don't know why I get so nervous, but it's because I want to. Um, uh, but, but I think the thing you'll take away from this today is that I love people. I want to help people, not just because I'm a nurse, because who I am. And I thank you. Thank you so much for having me and on your show. And uh, to your listeners, um, anything that happens in life, just remember, you you can survive. You're a survivor. Women are strong. They have babies. Men don't. Right? <laughs> I never had a baby, but yeah. You know, it's funny because in the military, there's a, a quote that, you know, is uh, Shakespeare, I think, uh it says, uh, what is it? From this day to the ending of the world, we in it shall be remembered for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. And I always say that speech when I talk, but I always say, and may I add, we band of sisters for she served too. And it's not just because in the military, it's everywhere. The Peace Corps, Project Hope, my whole life. And I hope that I have many more years to help serve my family and my friends. And maybe that stranger that just by even with a mask on i try to use my eyes to smile at somebody that looks like they're having a bad day but hey god bless you all thank you so much and um good luck hope to see you soon there now follows a public service announcement i'm horatia hornblower and i'm archie kennedy the simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders indeed the regulations are very clear in the matter it is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both.